Again, it's a humbling joy and privilege to be able to open the scriptures with you this morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, uh, you can follow along with the insert that's found in your bulletin, or there are Bibles on the black cart, I think. I'm not sure they're on the table. I think they're on the cart. Uh, Please go ahead and grab one, and if you don't own a copy of God's Word, take that home. That's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word. For those visiting this morning, we have been working our way Uh, through this gospel of Mark, this account of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, the one in whom we've sung. Mark has been showing us both the nature of God's kingdom, the message that Jesus proclaimed when he walked this earth some 2,000 years ago, as well as the nature of God's king, the Lord Jesus himself, What was he like? What is he like? Of course, the grand story, the grand narrative that frames all of this activity is the story that God is writing in redeeming a people for himself. Not just a chosen nation, not just the Jewish nation, but a nation of all peoples, a kingdom of all peoples. And so Jesus has come to earth, and as we have seen, he is on a mission of restoration. The kingdom has come, and it is coming. We've learned, and we've marveled at, and we've wondered. C.S. Lewis calls this kingdom, or this mission of restoration in, in his classic work, Mere Christianity, he calls it a great campaign of sabotage. And I kind of like that. I like that imagery. As Jesus comes to earth, he is on a great campaign of sabotage. And indeed, we have seen some of that sabotage. As the chaos of the waters and the evil of the spirits have been silenced by the word of the Savior. Well, today in the travels of Jesus, Last week, those of you who were here, we were on the other side of the lake. And Jesus returns to where he has spent most of his time, the region of Galilee. And we turn to an account that is recorded not just by Mark, but by two, of, two more of the gospel writers, two stories of need and brokenness that intersect one another this morning. And so, Listen as I read, and if you would, please stand with me out of honor and reverence for God's holy word. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years 
who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus Perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, and they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him and he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. A few months ago, I believe it was during Black History Month in this nation, there was a trend that was started on social media where people were posting photos of our president, President Obama, with children. And while I may disagree with many of our president's policies, these pictures were adorable. In one, Obama is stooped over after a young boy, an African-American boy himself, wanted to feel the president's hair, wanted to feel his head, to feel if it was like his In another, the president has his hands over his eyes as he stoops down and plays peekaboo with one of his staffer's children. And then in probably my favorite one, our president is lying flat on his back on the presidential seal that lies on the carpet in the Oval Office, and he's got a young baby over him as I used to hold my children when I was young. 
They're striking images. Here is the leader of the free world, a man of enormous power making time, making himself vulnerable, literally stooping down low to show his love, to show his concern for dependent little ones. Oh, if you and I did it, it certainly wouldn't be newsworthy, but because of who it is, it's amazing. And I bring that picture up, those images up. I don't know if you've seen them or not. Hopefully I've described them to you well because they are just a dim picture, a frail pointer to the condescension of our Savior that is on full display as he interacts with these two people in Galilee. As we continue to work our way through the book of Mark, as we continue to fill in this beautiful portrait that Mark is painting us of the Lord Jesus, I want to focus our hearts on two truths about our Savior. Two truths for us to meditate on this morning as we work our way through this story. And the first one is this. Jesus meets you in your hopelessness. Jesus meets you in your hopelessness. Over the last few weeks, we've acknowledged that in the chaos of life, in the storms of our lives, Jesus is there bringing calm, bringing peace. In the bondage of our sin, in the midst of things that enslave us and entrap us, Jesus sets us free to live for him, to live life as it was truly intended to live. And today, Jesus confronts two people that are literally at the end of their rope. They're out of options. Maybe that's you this morning. As we jump back into the story, it seems that the return trip to Galilee in the boat is the only respite that Jesus is going to get because as he hits the shore, a crowd immediately awaits his presence. And among the crowd is a desperate, despairing dad. His name is Jairus, and he is the ruler, a ruler in the synagogue. The synagogues were these regional houses of worship that dotted the ancient world at that time, and Jairus was not a rabbi, he was not a teacher of the law, but nevertheless, he was an important religious and cultural figure. He basically ensured that the synagogue ran smoothly. But all that is secondary right now. Because he has a 12-year-old daughter, his only daughter, Luke tells us, who is sick. Very, very sick. He's likely prayed, he's agonized, and he's got no more options. Except for maybe one. 
He's gotten wind of this healing teacher that is traveling around the region working wonders and Jairus decides he's going to track him down. And like the demons before him, when he comes to Jesus, he falls down at Jesus' feet, maybe out of mere exhaustion. Who knows where he has come from, how far he has traveled. And Mark conveys to us, Dads, I know that you can feel this passage with me. He conveys with us the despair and the urgency that Jairus feels. Mark says, he implored him earnestly, my daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. You see, he believes that that Jesus can heal her, but time is critical. This is urgent. You can feel it. In Mark's account, Jesus doesn't hesitate. hesitate. Jesus meets him in his hopelessness. He listens to his need and he responds. He hears his cry and he goes, okay, let's go. Let's go find her. But then suddenly, suddenly into this urgency, into this drama comes another storyline. It's almost as if you're watching a show and someone moves in the couch and, and flips the channel and you're like, whoa, 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 wait, where did he go? Suddenly a new woman is before us. In this mass of people, there is a woman that's hiding out. And I want you to think of her as hiding out. See, she's hiding in this throng of people. She's been dealing with bleeding for 12 years. As long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, she's seen tons of doctors. She's spent way too much money, and her condition has only gotten worse, Mark tells us. But not only is she hopeless, not only is she at the end of her rope, but according to ancient Jewish law, because of her condition, She is unclean. See, Leviticus 15 makes it clear that a woman with a discharge of blood such as this is not only unclean, but everything she sits on, every bed she lays on, and by extension, any person who touches any of those things are unclean. And before they come back into the community of fellowship and worship, they must go through ritual cleansing. That is the condition of this woman. Hopeless, desperate, and defiled. And she has no more options except for maybe the healer. Maybe, just maybe, if the stories are true, she thinks. But, but she can't just saunter up to him. She, she has a reputation And it's not a clean reputation. No, she must sneak up to him. She must approach him in anonymity, and so she does. She makes her way through this song of people, and she touches his robe and immediately feels the results. 
Mark gives us a phrase that is only found here. It's an amazing phrase. Perceiving that the power had gone out from him. I mean, he's being pressed in from every side. But it's a reminder that you can be around Jesus. You can be rubbing up against Jesus. But you cannot really be experiencing Jesus and knowing his power. And here this woman touches him and she's healed. It's really an astounding description and one that I wonder if Peter had heard from Jesus one night as he was speaking about this incident. And then Peter then conveys it to Mark who wrote it down for us. Don't let that phrase lead you to believe though that Jesus was just some energy source that was walking around that could be tapped into. The woman may very well have thought that and we'll get to what she thought in a moment. But she didn't steal his power. Jesus sovereignly administered his power. However uniquely Jesus met this woman in her hopeless state. Mark tells us that Jesus is not content to let her disappear. Oh, she needs much more than just physical healing. And so while he is supposed to be hurrying to Jairus' house, he calls her out of the crowd. Who touched me? He allows this woman's need, this anonymous woman's need, to trump the need of a highly respected religious leader. It's another little mini lesson in and of itself about our Savior. Verse 33 describes the woman as trembling. She is scared. And she is scared in, because in her uncleanness, she has rubbed up against a whole lot of people coming through that crowd. And now they see her as Jesus has called her out and she has fessed up. She is scared because she has experienced a power that she's never felt and now she is speaking to the source of that power. And as we come to the end of verse 33, we wonder what will happen. And Jesus addresses her. The only time Jesus is ever recorded addressing someone like this And he says, daughter, go in peace and be healed of your disease. You see, in front of all these people, many of whom probably knew her, they knew of her uncleanness. In front of all of these people, what does Jesus do? He speaks over her identity and healing. Jesus has absorbed that defilement. He has absorbed her shame and he has essentially lifted the quarantine from her and he has made her a child on the spot. Daughter, be clean. Go in peace. She doesn't understand it all. She doesn't know him. But she knows enough. She believed 
You see, this is the mission of Jesus, of the man who is proving himself as we work through the gospel of Mark again and again, proving himself to be the God-man. He's the one who came to meet you in your hopelessness, to meet you in your brokenness. And he did so by becoming broken himself. He will take upon himself our sin that we might receive the same declaration of identity and cleansing from the Father, healed, adopted, and at peace because of our Savior. So the first takeaway of this passage is come to Jesus. Come to Jesus in your brokenness, in your hopelessness, either for the first time or for the hundredth time, for the thousandth time. Come to the one who allowed himself to be weak for you that you might be strong. Psalm 43, 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Jesus meets you in your hopelessness. Jesus meets me in my hopelessness. But what about Jairus? We've kind of put the pause button on Jairus' story. All this time, Jairus is just standing there, right? I mean, he hasn't left. He's just standing there next to Jesus, waiting for his urgent need at home to be dealt with. That is, until he receives news from home. And that brings us to the second truth that I want us to meditate on for just a moment. Not only does Jesus meet you in your hopelessness, Jesus meets you in your weakness. Jesus meets you in your weakness. Several months back, I was leaving the church facility here after spending a day in my study working, and I was heading uh, east on 220th Street right here, and I had just pulled out of the church parking lot, and I was up to probably 30 or 35 miles an hour, and I was about to cross uh, the cross street there of 80th, um, the first major or the first cross street that you come to as you head east on 220th. And I was about four or five car lengths from 80th when all of a sudden, zoom, right across 220th goes a car. And I, I just slowed down and, and I got this chill over me and, and I kind of acted like there was a stop sign there and I looked and, and the person just had no idea there was a stop sign at that cross street and just blew through the stop sign at 30, 35 miles an hour. I was rattled. As I put rewind on my day, I was so thankful that in God's providence, at some point in my day, I was delayed. Maybe I dropped my keys getting into the car. But I was delayed just that three, four, five seconds where I wasn't rolling through that intersection at the exact moment that that person blew that stop sign. A divine delay 
that produced something that I could give thanks for. I'm sure we all have stories like that to some extent, to some degree. We all have stories. Stories where something is happening. We don't even know sometimes that they're occurring. Other times delays can be frustrating. They can be disappointing. They can be infuriating. And in our weakness, we don't understand We don't understand why. I don't know what was going through Jarius' mind, but I, boy, I wonder. I wonder what was going through his mind as somebody close to him came and told him that his daughter was gone. And that that glimmer of hope that had arisen out of the hopelessness as he actually got to meet the healer and the healer was actually on his way to his home and now that was gone. And obviously the people who had come from home, they believed that Jesus could heal. But now Jesus was useless. She was gone. It didn't even enter their minds that that he could do something now. Confusion mixed with grief. I suspect Jairus was numb. I feel the story so much here in this one moment, this one scene. And I love what Jesus does. Jairus is standing there. Who knows what he's thinking? He's so confused. He's just heard his daughter is dead. And Jesus hears the news out of the corner of his ear. And knowing how that news is going to hit Jairus, he meets him in his weakness and he turns and he says, don't fear, only believe. Before Chirus heads down this slippery slope of despair and discouragement, Jesus stops him and says, don't fear, only believe. Well, then, then his mind is, is reeling. And, and while Jairus is trying to get his bearings, Jesus knows that the delay that this woman has caused has just opened the door for something greater. Something so much more spectacular. Something that's going to cause such a ruckus in the region that only a few people can see this. Right? He thins out the crowd to those closest to him, to the family, to the mom, to the dad. He knows if the religious leaders witness this, boy, things will escalate too quickly. Not only that, but I don't want you to miss sight that in this delay, Jesus is is growing Jairus. He's growing his disciples. I also love how in verse 40, he doesn't allow the scoffers to come in and witness this. No, you stay outside. He had been touched by an unclean woman. Now he's about to go into a house and touch an unclean corpse. But like the woman before this, the purity and the power of the Savior reverses the curse and begins to make things right. 
And in a show of divine power and sabotage, he takes the little girl by the hand and tells her in Aramaic, little girl, get up. Now, we don't know exactly why Mark didn't translate this phrase. I mean, he did translate it for us, but he left the Aramaic rendering in there. Maybe simply because it was such a significant event and those two words were such powerful words. He wanted his readers to remember them. For this family, Jesus has literally removed the sting of death. Now, he didn't do this, and he couldn't with his human limitations. He couldn't do this for every family who lost a child. But in our weakness, and in this family's life, He gave them a foretaste of what was to come. For he will remove the sting of death for all who look to him in faith. The words he said after raising his friend Lazarus are appropriate here. John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, he says. There's so many things to marvel about in this passage. The timing of our Savior. It's always perfect. He doesn't operate on our schedules, does he? But there's no reason for despair. The condescension of our Savior, powerfully humble touching the unclean, making time for the downcast, for the marginalized, the touch of our Savior. Not afar off. He's he's in the boat. He's in the room. He's touching the deaf and the power of the Savior to give life, to give new life. Jesus meets you in your weakness. But I want to go back to the woman for just a moment because I think she illustrates this truth as well. You see, this is obviously a passage that exalts Jesus, gives us a picture of our Savior, and it calls us in our hopelessness, in our desperation, in our weakness, to not fear, but to believe. But frankly, that's easier said than done, isn't it? That's hard. One of the things I love about this passage is Jesus meets us, meets you in your weak faith. The woman came to him with a faith that was mixed with superstition, that was mixed with with magic. She didn't understand the full portrait, the full picture of of who this man was. Jesus, the Son of God, came as the Lamb of God. No, she just wanted healing. She just wanted power. What weak faith. And those who sent Jairus, and maybe Jairus himself, they only thought that Jesus' power could go so far. After she's dead, well, you can't do anything now. Weak faith. 
Hey, what does Jesus do in both of these situations? He meets them in their weak faith and he doesn't require them to pull themselves up. But only to have the simplest faith and then let the strong object of that faith, the Lord Jesus, do the rest. See, he didn't just heal them. He changed them through this. And I don't know about you, but I, I need that news. I don't need to just know that Jesus came in my hopelessness, that Jesus came in my weakness, and I just need to believe Jesus more and better. No, I need to know that Jesus came in my weak faith. And whatever ounce of belief I've got, I just need to grasp for it. And let the strong Savior do the rest. A desperate father, a defiled woman, a dead little girl, and delayed grace. All of it, an opportunity to display the compassion and the condescension of our Savior in your brokenness, in your impatience, in your weak faith. Hear his words to you. Do not fear just belief. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you that we don't look at champions of the faith, superhumans who clung to you, white knuckled, but as those who came in brokenness and, and in need and, and with just an ounce of belief that, that you are the one and that you could do what they had heard you do. And so we cry out to you and we say, we believe, but help our unbelief. Oh, Spirit, encourage us. Build our faith that we might go from this place changed. That we might go with a message for the hopeless, for the weak, for the broken. O Holy Spirit, impress this upon us, we pray, for the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen.